Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series in Hebrews called The Priceless Treasure of Jesus. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 4, verses 6 to 11, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled Discovering Rest. I'm sometimes haunted by an old painting. It's called The Ladder of Divine Ascent. Painting has also been called The Ladder of Paradise. The painting comes, I think, from the Byzantine times, and it pictures a ladder reaching up to heaven with the saints climbing the ladder. In the far upper left of the painting are a group of what appears to be angels and heavenly saints who watch with great interest. In the far upper right corner of the painting is the top of the ladder and what appears to be Jesus welcoming those who have successfully climbed the ladder home into heaven. But along the ladder are those who are climbing. But here comes the troubling part. All along that ladder, flying in the air, are demons who have ropes with what appear to be lassoes in which they have gotten the ropes around people's heads and are pulling them from the ladder to their doom. So whatever you make of that painting, you know, there's a subject matter we need to consider. Truth be told, the book of Hebrews has been telling us of ancient Israel and of the people who followed Moses out of slavery in Egypt but who never made it to the promised land. Instead, they died in the wilderness, leaving it to their children to inherit what they failed to have obtained. The image that Hebrews gives us in many ways does tell us that simply climbing the ladder doesn't mean you're going to arrive on heaven's shores. Like the ladder of divine ascent, they fell from grace. It's a horrible and haunting image. As we've already seen from Hebrews, the writer or the preacher has a great pastoral care. He says in chapter 4, verse 1, Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. And there has been an image that the writer of Hebrews has been using and that we need to fully understand. It's the image of rest. The first time we read that word was in chapter 3, verse 11. Hebrews was then quoting Psalm 95, speaking of the generation that followed Moses out of Egypt. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And we noted there that the word rest clearly referred to Canaan or the promised land. Because of unbelief and because of constantly complaining against God, refusing to obey him and trust him, that generation did not come to their goal, the promised land. But ultimately, the image of Canaan and the rest that that land signified is taken up in a greater ultimate image. It turns out that Canaan was only a type or a symbol of the ultimate rest, which is heaven. Hebrews will teach us very plainly that very concept in chapter 12. But in today's passage, we will see that the word rest comes up not just once more, but five more times. So let's read our text, Hebrews 4, 6 to 11. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience, Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. 
Now, before we get into the details, I want to point out the key verse of this paragraph, and it's verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, clearly here, the word rest is connected to the idea of a Sabbath rest, a rest when Israel ceased from their labors, spent time in worship, and of course, just generally rested, didn't work. To say there remains a Sabbath rest is clearly a reference to heaven. It might be that on this side of eternity, there are a great many struggles that lie ahead. I've already made mention of the fear that the Hebrew Christians had, a fear that the Emperor Nero would broaden the persecution against Christians. And so laboring under the threat of being fired from one's job to imprisonment and even death, all of this meant a great deal of labor, a lack of rest. But of course, it's also true of us. We labor under temptation. We labor under discouragement the temptation to complain against God. We struggle to believe that God will really fulfill his promises. And we struggle to bring all things in our lives under Christ and to live daily for his glory. And even if we labor, there remains a promised rest. The day will come, blessed brothers and sisters, when we will no longer struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those labors will be gone. Just like the ancient Jew, after a long week of work, came the day of rest and laid all work aside. And we'll be like that when we enter glory. All those temptations will be no more. All those struggles will fall. All the sins that you fought with all your might against, they're going to fall from you. You're going to rest. Yeah, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And that's the theme of the passage we're discussing. Don't you grow weary of well-doing. Don't you grow weary in the struggle. In a short while now, you'll take off the working boots and clothes. You're going to rest. And now let's get a little more technical because the observant listener is going to say, you know, exactly how are you using that word rest? Because as we saw yesterday, when we studied Hebrews 4 verse 3, there we read, for those who have believed enter that rest. And so the word rest, as we saw then, also refers to something that believers experience right now when they trust in Christ. We said then that the word rest can refer to our salvation experience. We no longer strive to fulfill the law or earn our way to heaven. Christ has earned that way for us. We rest, in fact, we rest upon Christ and his finished work. On the cross, Jesus announced that it was finished. And so we don't try to gain God's favor. Rather, Christ has done it for us. We rest. And so you might be scratching your head. I mean, how am I to understand this word rest? See, on the one hand, rest refers to what God did on the seventh day. After he created the world, he rested. And then rest refers to the promised land. And then it refers to what Christ has done for us in our salvation. And then it refers to our heavenly home. I mean, might say, I just don't understand. So as we read through Hebrews, let's settle the question of rest. The word rest means the work is done. You know, in creation, the work was done. When Israel entered the promised land, the work of constantly traveling without a home, that was done. In our salvation, Christ did the work for us, and we rest in what he has accomplished for us. In heaven, the labors of this earth and the weariness of living in a world cursed by sin is finally over. Our battles are behind us. We rest. Now, it's true that some might argue that doesn't quite fit. Look, when God finished the work of creation, that didn't mean the work was over. Adam would still sin, and a Savior would need to be sent, and a world needed to be redeemed. 
And when it comes to the promised land, there were many battles that needed to be fought after they entered the rest. And although Christ has paid for all of our sins and secured our eternity, we too on this side of heaven will engage in warfare with the world of flesh, the devil. And even in heaven, when all warfare will cease, is there not a joyful work to be done of ruling and reigning with Christ over all the works of his hands? Yeah, that's true. And as I pointed out yesterday, rest doesn't mean that we become inactive. You know, hang about in a hammock, sipping fruit drinks and watching television. Rather, rest means completion. There's something that has been done that doesn't need to be revisited again. It's complete. And therefore, all that needs to be done is done, and all we do is rest. Let me suggest several examples. You know, when I served as a pastor for many years, I was mindful that my work was never done. It was unfinished business. That's the very nature of the work. Even on my day off, I was aware, you know, someone might die, an emergency might rise up, all sorts of things. And furthermore, whatever progress was made in the lives of some people, there was still more to be done. I never felt I ever got to the place where I said, okay, it's done. And nothing was ever done. And I'm not complaining. It was great work. But for a short period of time, I taught at a Bible college. And at the end of the school year, I graduated all my problems. I put all my notes and marked them into a box, closed the box, went on vacation. It was done. Rest. See, that's what rest is. It's completion. And by the way, that's why believers take one day of the week, something we now call the Lord's Day, where we worship and rest from our labors. See, on the one hand, it anticipates the final rest to come, but also it allows us to close the book on our labors and worship and reflect and become quiet. Quit striving, just cease and rest. You know, it was John Newton who wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, also wrote the following lines in a hymn about the Lord's day. Safely through another week, God has brought us on our way. Let us now a blessing seek, waiting in his courts today. Day of all the week, the best, emblem of eternal rest. See, we live in a a seven-day-a-week world, and even among Christians, the idea of rest gets lost. What a tragedy. We need rest. We need completion. And so as we look at our text, verse 6, it begins as follows. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. Indeed, it does. Many still need to enter the rest that God provides. Great missions require great partnerships. When we join forces, we can carry the gospel of Jesus so much further than anybody could alone. This month, we're thrilled to share that Back to the Bible Canada is introducing a renewed monthly partner program now called Companions for the Gospel. Monthly partners play a key role in this ministry. They provide a reliable, consistent source of funds that helps sustain current and future gospel-centered initiatives. It's an incredible honor to collaborate with like-minded individuals that share our heart for speaking the truth of God's Word. We want to encourage you to become a part of this essential group of partners. There are a few benefits to becoming a companion of the gospel, but even more important is the impact your partnership will make in sharing the truth of God's Word. To find out more, to sign up, or to give a one-time gift, visit us at backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425. 
it remains for some to enter God's rest. The day in which salvation is being offered is today. Furthermore, it remains for some. You see, God has ordained that there are still those who will enter that rest. It is for that reason that faithful Christians are called upon to go out and bring the good and saving news of Jesus to everyone who will listen so that they might be saved. Why do we do it? Because it remains for some to enter God's rest. But with that glad news comes sobering news. And those who formerly received the good news fail to enter because of disobedience. No doubt this is a reference again to the generation that followed Moses out of Egypt, but it's also a reference to those in the present day who heard and received and perhaps even for a time followed the Christian message. But these people, by the end of their lives, were like the people in the time of Moses. They failed to enter the rest. See, what a tragedy it is for people to have been under the instruction of Scripture, the gospel of Jesus, to fail to enter the blessed rest. They may have, for some period of time, had the correct profession. I believe, they said, in Jesus. I believe, they said, that he died for me. And they might even have said, I repent of my sins. I surrender my life to him. All the while, according to verse 6, they actually remain in disobedience. You know, if I might play on the word rest here in a way that Hebrews actually doesn't, so forgive me. But when I say they refuse to rest from the rebellion against the commands of Christ, they live rejecting his commands. And those people fail to enter the rest. They live out their days and are like those Jesus spoke of when he said in you know, Matthew 7, 23, depart from me, I never knew you. I, I think we do need to speak this way. You know, as but one example, I hear of pastors who are caught in gross sins and I hear very few people suggesting that they never knew Jesus. Rather, people say, well, you know, it was really a power issue. Well, perhaps it was. Others say, well, you know, they not dealt with their sexuality. Well, perhaps. Still others speak about the need to build greater accountability structures. No doubt that's true. But why do we not speak the language of Scripture? Depart from me. Or as Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6b says, they fail to enter the rest because of their disobedience. Why don't we say what the Bible says? I mean, you may preach well, but you might be disobedient and not enter the rest. It is true that there are many preachers who now await the final judgment in gloomy dungeons held in chains. And if that's true of preachers, listen, it's true of others as well. Oh my, we must listen to verse 6. Now verse 7. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This is the point that's already been made. But it's worthwhile to make it again. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For the word today indicates that God's Spirit may be speaking to you today. Don't you shut that voice out. This certain day in which God's Spirit speaks to you may not be repeated tomorrow. You have today, this moment, this time, that's all. Don't tell yourself God's going to overlook your blatant unwillingness to repent. Don't you justify your sin or look at your culture and comfort yourself that everyone else's sins are in the like manner as yours. Remember the days of Noah when God destroyed an entire world. Remember it and don't you harden your heart. Do business with God today. Turn from all your known sins. Take God's word seriously. Take the voices of the sinful culture much less seriously for the culture is but for a moment, but God's word is eternal. Don't you harden your heart. And with this, we turn back to the people addressed in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, most basically, the book of Hebrews tells those Christians the fulfillment of the promise of rest was not accomplished in the days of Joshua. And you might remember, after all the wars that were fought in Joshua's day, we come to Joshua 22, verse 4. Joshua is now near the end of his life, and he makes the following statement to the two and a half tribes who have already gained their land, but were fighting for their brothers to gain their land. And Joshua says, And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he has promised. And with that, he releases them from their obligation to continue to serve in the military campaigns. So Joshua is saying, We've broken the back of enemy resistance. Hence, there's a completion. There's a rest from the wars to gain dominance in this land. But, says Hebrews, Did you also know that the promised land is only a prefigurement of the real eternal rest? The rest God intended for his people is not ultimately fulfilled in Israel when they inherited the promised land. The entire idea of rest is forward-looking. The reason that even when rest occurs in this life, we're still not satisfied, well, it's because Israel was not created for Canaan, and we weren't created for this life. Something greater awaits us, verses 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now these words tell us that the First Testament, as glorious as it is, is not a completed book. It speaks about real events. It happened in real history among real people who are called into being by the real God. But these events leave us both overwhelmed with joy, but also overwhelmed that something is unresolved. The promised land is not what you're looking for. It's but a type of an eternal promised land. But the same is also true of the Sabbath. There's a great deal of conflict among present-day evangelicals about the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. You know, modern-day evangelical theologians normally differ from the older evangelical theologians. It's a long, detailed theological discussion, but the newer theologians argue that the fourth command is no longer in place, and we've now been reduced to nine commandments. So they argue that the command to take one day a week for rest is no longer valid for Christians. But the older evangelicals, the ones from the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, they argued that all ten commandments are still in force. Believers today celebrate all Ten Commandments, and they keep the Lord's Day. Again, I can't go through all the arguments for this, only to say that in my estimation, the Fourth Commandment has never been abrogated. Even as the command against having another God is still in play, the command never to commit adultery, never to steal, and so forth, all those are still valid today, so the New Testament never cancels out the Fourth Commandment. Even Colossians 2, 16 and 17, which tells us that we are free to keep all days alike, is not, in my estimation, canceling the fourth commandment. Rather, it frees believers from the special feast days of Israel. Again, it's a larger, more extended argument, but I raise it here simply because, even as we are told that Israel receiving the promised land is a type or a foretaste of the ultimate promised land, so also, as we... Every one day of every week, cease from our work, give ourselves to rest and worship, that when we do this, we're reminded that the practice of rest is a type or a foreshadowing of ultimate rest. 
Next Sunday, remember this, you go to worship and after that, you spend time in fellowship, but you don't work. See, it reminds you one day every single week that the labor of this sinful earth will finally give way to rest. Just imagine what that meant for those Hebrew Christians as the pressure that was leveled against them for their newfound faith continued to grow every day in intensity. Will we ever get to the end of this ever-increasing hostility against Christ and his followers? I mean, can you then imagine as their pastor instructs them on a basic truth? Whenever you celebrate the Lord's Day and whenever you rest from your labors, do you know that the rest you're enjoying is a type? It's It's a divine prophecy of what's to come in the future. One day, you'll rest from the hostility that is leveled against you. This rest remains for the people of God. And then their pastor adds further words. Whoever has entered God's rest, see, he's not talking about Sabbath, he's talking about salvation. Whoever enters rest from your own efforts to please God and rest in the finished work of Christ, who was crucified for you and brought you peace with God, whoever enters that rest, that rest is exactly like what God did when he created the world. You don't have to wonder if you're reconciled to God. Rest. The work is completed. Nothing more remains to be done. And then comes verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall away by some sort of disobedience. I know some find this confusing. Just when we're talking about rest, now we're talking about striving, what goes on. And the answer is simple. It's this. No matter what it costs or how many sacrifices that are required, enter into what God has for you. See to it that no one falls away by disobedience. You know, I began by speaking about the ladder of divine ascent. What a horrible thought that some would have begun to climb the ladder and have failed to come to the place of paradise. Don't let that happen to you. Make every effort to deny the flesh and cling to the promises of God until you make it safely home. Thanks so much, John. You know... It's in the promises of God that we find our confidence in our salvation, but how can we maintain that confidence? Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, this is a part of the book of Hebrews that tells us that we must maintain that confidence firm until the end and that we must beware of disobedience. But here, I think, we have to rely fully on the power that God gives us. You know, you won't have the power in yourself. I won't have it either. We trust in the Lord and we continue to confess our sins. That's key. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, The Priceless Treasure of Jesus, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. The command to make disciples is not just for church leaders or congregations. It's for every believer and every ministry effort in Jesus' name. Back to the Bible Canada is a disciple-making ministry through its teaching, broadcasts, and publications. One of these publications includes the bi-monthly magazine, Truth and Life. This year, Truth and Life has had a unique discipleship focus, with each issue highlighting a different marker of discipleship. It's our hope that each of the elements of discipleship explored will help lay a foundation of what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. To subscribe and receive a free copy of the next issue mailed directly to your home, 
visit backtothebible.ca or call 1-800-663-2425.